friends. Bible's open, Acts chapter 12. I'll give you a second to get there. As you're turning to Acts chapter 12, um, I just wanted to ask for your prayers over the next couple of days. I am speaking uh, all day tomorrow, just outside of Kingston. And, you know, I do this from time to time, and it's always a great sense of um, strength and comfort for me to go feeling like I'm going on your behalf. And so if you would please remember me in prayer as I'm preaching the gospel all day tomorrow. Would you do that? All right, thanks. Acts chapter 12, let's jump right in. Well, first we'll pray. Father, again we gather as at the feet of Jesus to be taught. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices to try to figure things out, but you have spoken. And that in scripture we have God's word written. Your word for us and to us. Your word where we see ourselves as we truly are, sinners in need of a Savior. Your word where we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, come to love and trust in Jesus. And we are set free. Would you, this morning, honor your word and by your spirit be manifestly present and at work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 12, no further ado. Let's begin in verses 1 to 5. In verses 1 to 5, we are going to see the very first apostle martyred. And then we will see another imprisoned next in line for execution. So let's look at verses 1 to 2. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, if you'll recall back in chapter 7, we've already witnessed the martyrdom, the execution of the very first Christian. What was his name? That's right. Stephen was the very first Christian killed for his profession of faith that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. But here in chapter 12, we see James, who is the first apostle, killed. Now, in all of Scripture, James is the only apostle that we read of where his martyrdom is recorded. But we know from church history that all of the twelve except one were eventually killed for their profession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who was the one who was not executed? Do you know? John. What happened to him? Exiled on Patmos. Died of old age. That's right. Well, what we have here is James, and this is James who is the brother of John, we're told in Scripture. This is the James who, along with his brother John, were the sons of Zebedee. Remember them? The sons of thunder. This is the James who, along with his brother John and Peter, formed that kind of inner circle of three amongst the disciples and the apostles. As you're reading through scripture, you hear it, right? Peter, James, and John. This is that guy. Okay, hands up if you were raised in Sunday school. Let me just see by a show of hands. So then you know the song. It goes, Peter, James, and John in a No? In a sailboat out on the deep blue sea. You don't know that one? Come on. Well, this is that guy. 
Back in Luke chapter 5, you wonder, well, why was there an inner circle, right? Why were there three guys? It's not explicit in Scripture, but it's possible that they were just the guys who were with Jesus the longest. Back in Luke chapter 5, we're told of the miraculous catch where Peter, James, and John were summoned to go back out in their boats and to throw their nets over the other side, and they brought in an enormous catch of fish. Peter, James, and John, and sailboat, yeah. And Jesus said to them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So they were like the original guys, right? Peter, James, and John. These are the same three who in Luke chapter 9 witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus where the veil was peeled back and these three guys saw Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, for who he truly was, resplendent in glory. Well, in verse 1, we hear that Herod is incensed. He is absolutely furious, by the, made so by the proclamation that there is another Lord other than he. And these Christians are going around saying there's this other Lord and his name is Jesus and he rules and reigns over everything. Now you got to put yourself back in their time, okay? Herod didn't particularly care about his citizens. That's evidenced by his many actions and decisions. He also didn't overly care about their religious persuasions or observances, whatever. But he did care deeply about this Christian proclamation that Jesus is Lord. That's what brought Herod's ire. That's what brought him to a place of violence against the church. And the same Christian man or woman is true for us today. You might be a Christian man or woman going about your life, and everyone thinks of you as somehow nice, polite, kind, perhaps even quaint. That's because you have not yet embraced and lived out and proclaimed and applied the Lordship of Jesus. As long as your entire life merely says Jesus Christ is Savior, but never makes claim to being Lord, then you will never face the wrath of the Herods. Let me say this a different way. Until your faith in Jesus and your proclamation of his cosmic rule rubs against everyone else and everything else that is vying to usurp lordship, you'll never face the wrath of Herod. You will just be casually irrelevant, right? You'll have your little religious beliefs, you'll have your little stuff, and no one will really care. Right up until the point where you have to say things like, I can't do that because I have a Lord and his name is Jesus. This is the central claim of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's one that applies to every area of your life. You see, Jesus friend, is Lord over your finances. 
Everything comes from him, and from his own we give back to him. We're just merely stewards. And so when other people and other competing values try to express usurped lordship over your finances, and you have to say things like, no, I reject that value. I reject that functional lord. Jesus is lord over my finances. He tells me how to spend them. Then you're going to feel the rub. Jesus is Lord over your body. He holds prerogatives and sway over what you do with it. You want to become unpopular at a cocktail party? Just tell somebody that. Jesus is Lord over your body. Jesus is Lord over your affections, your desires. When you want something that is sinful and inherently leading to death, the lordship of Jesus Christ causes you to bow your knee to him as Lord and reject that sinful desire. Jesus is Lord. You know, what's really at stake here is this question of what it means to have faith. It is possible to claim some kind of faith that is mere belief. You know, maybe you've heard well-meaning Christians say things like, hey, listen, if you want to be a Christian, all you have to do is believe. That's not saving faith. Saving faith means to so appropriate and apply the lordship of Jesus Christ to your life that his rule and his reign requires faith that is radical from the center all the way out, applied to every area of your life, Well, the lordship of Jesus was so radical and so notable in the earliest church that it brought about the violence of the secular leader of the day, Herod. You know, you see in history that godly secular leaders who view themselves as vice regents under the Lord Jesus Christ these civil magistrates who say, I have no power in my sphere other than that which the Lord Jesus Christ gives me, godly leaders, they will look at people under their authority who bow their knee to Jesus as Lord, and they will say, that's a virtue, that's a good thing. But ungodly secular leaders will see it as a vice. And so James, we are told in verse 2, is put to the sword violently because he believed and lived out the fact that Jesus is Lord. Verse 3, and when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So here we get a picture or a case study in bad leadership, right? Herod. He is ever the pragmatist, ever the populist. He leads from polls instead of from conviction. Does this sound like it's still a problem today? Politicians who, rather than saying, these are my convictions and I am going to lead from them, 
come what may, these are leaders who are leading from behind and following poles. Well, Christian man or woman, wherever God has placed you in any position of authority, whether it's in your home, in your workplace, in the church, as a Christian leader, you are not a pragmatist, you are convictional. You follow godly principles and let the chips fall where they may. Well, that's not what we see with Herod. Herod kills James. He sees that the people really like it. And so in order to try to garner more popular support, he then says, oh man, that actually worked out really well. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to imprison the other guy, Peter. I'm going to kill him too. Because that's going to make me really, really popular with the crowds. That will be the coup de grace against this upstart Christian church. We'll finish them off. Kill James, going to kill Peter. But there's a problem. Did you see it in verse 3? It's the days of unleavened bread. And so Herod realizes, he's like, I can't kill Peter quite yet. Can't kill him during the high holy days. The feast of unleavened bread and the Passover... I'm just going to have to lock him away. So hold, hold on to that for a moment, okay? This is all taking place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 4. Herod sticks him into a maximum security detention situation. Verse 5. What does the church do in response? You see it in verse 5? So Peter was kept in prison, but... What does it say? Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church goes to prayer. I want you to consider this for a moment. It is biblically normal for churches, when faced with crisis or hardship, to go to prayer to go to their knees, individually and collectively. And I was so convicted this past week when I was reading and studying this. I see this picture of the church who, when they are faced with crisis, James has just been executed, Peter has been imprisoned, he's going to be executed, he's next in line. The church doesn't roll up their sleeves, you know, start writing their MPs and start lobbying and start, what do they do? They go to prayer. And I was convicted because I was thinking, man, that's not my default setting. Far too often, I go to prayer as a last resort instead of a first resort. Perhaps you'd say the same. Well, you hear that in the early church, and you read it in Acts, and you think, okay, okay, so the church, they went to prayer immediately, um, but you know, R.D., it was so much easier for them back then. They were witnessing miracles. Every time they prayed, the Lord Jesus Christ answered in power exactly the way that they wanted to, baloney. That's not true. In fact, it's implied right in our text. It's not explicit, but it's implied. 
So we're told in verse 5 that Peter is imprisoned, the church goes to prayer, and as Christy read, Peter is going to be delivered and set free. But it was only a couple of verses ago that we read of James. And although it's not explicit, it's implied. James was in prison. The church would have also gone to prayer. And James was executed. But the church remained undaunted. When crisis fell upon them again, they turned themselves to fervent prayer. I think there's a pastoral point in here for us. When we pray, sometimes we become discouraged because God's answer to that prayer is not exactly what we would have wanted or chosen if we would have been God, right? We'd say, well, I prayed, and it's as though God didn't answer prayer. So that's why I don't pray anymore. But to be a Christian man or woman is to believe the faithful witness of Scripture that God always answers prayer. He answers the prayers that you would have prayed if you knew what he knows. Have you ever prayed and mercifully God answers the prayer in the exact way that you would have chosen? Have you ever had that? Praise God for that. I love it when that happens. Have you ever prayed And your good, loving, merciful God's answer to you was not the thing that you would have chosen. What do you do then? Well, Christian man or woman, you return to these deep commitments that your loving God is good and he is able. And therefore, his answer is always best. That's what we see here in the early church, right? That's how they were not flagging in their prayer, but they were vigilant in prayer. James has been killed, and yet they turn to the Lord in vigilant prayer for Peter. How does that work? You know, when God answers our prayers the way we would choose, um, it is always cause for celebration, and praise God for more of that, right? But when God chooses to answer our prayers in ways that are not the ones we would choose, it's in those moments that we truly come to know him, where we more deeply trust in him, where we have to say things like, I don't know why, but I trust you. Like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You see, it's in the crucible of those moments when we come to a deeper trust and a deeper relationship with God. Because in his mercy, he's exposed that we were not trusting him, we were trusting him for an outcome. Friend, when you pray... Come to the Lord God trusting that he is good 
and he is able. Don't try to manipulate him into an outcome, but rather trust in him and in his goodness and in his character. He will choose what is best. And by his spirit, he will conform your will and your heart to love that and to long for that. The church goes to prayer. Verses 6 to 11. So, okay, James has been killed. Peter's been carted off to prison. Um, Feast of unleavened bread is happening. So he's in a bit of a holding pattern. The church is all gathered together and they're in prayer. Okay, that's what's happened so far. Verses 6 to 11, Peter is going to be delivered. So verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him, Peter, out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door. They were guarding the prison. So Herod is about to uh, carry out Peter's execution. He's next in line. Peter's under heavy guard. He has chains that bind him. It's clear to him and to everyone else that he is on a trajectory that's headed to death and execution. Verse 7. An angel of the Lord appears. A light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. So I love this scene, right? You can imagine Peter sitting there like on the brink of despair probably. He's thinking, well, here we go. I saw what happened to James, my best buddy. I'm not going to recant. The Lord, Jesus is Lord. I know what's going to happen to me. So he's in chains. It's at night. He's the guards. And an angel of the Lord appears to him. And I chuckled reading this again because, you know, sometimes we picture the angels in Scripture as like chubby, infant cherubim or something, right? Like, like the Pillsbury Doughboy or something. And, and instead, here you have an angel, a messenger of the Lord, appearing to Peter and pokes him in the ribs. Like, don't, like, quick, get up, let's go. The chains fall off, verse 7. Verses 8 to 11, the angel of the Lord says, dress yourself, put on your sandals, Wrap up your cloak around you and follow me. Who did their scripture memory in King James Version? Raise your hand. Let me see. Yeah, a oh, few around. Me too. The King James here is great. It uses a turn of phrase that I love. You know what it says? It doesn't say, wrap up your clothes around you. It says, gird up your loins. You know what it means to gird your loins? You don't even know what a loin is. All right, so to gird up your loins means back then they didn't wear pants. They didn't wear like Under Armour athletic shorts. They wore these long kind of almost like a dress, kind of like those pajama things. You know what I mean? And to gird up your loins, the angel of the Lord was instructing Peter to take that long flowing thing, wrap it around his legs, hike it up and tie it in a knot so that he could what? Run, run. See, there's this sense of haste and urgency here that we don't want to miss. You know, I mentioned a moment ago that this was during the high holy day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right around the Passover. Are you guys familiar with Exodus 13 when 
God's people are living under the oppressive slavery and tyranny of Pharaoh. And God instructs them that he is going to send an angel that will bring wrath to bear and wipe out the ungodly. And they are, before that night, supposed to slaughter a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and then eat it with, do you know what? Haste. Interesting, isn't it? We're going to save that thought for a moment. Okay, so Peter, angel, pokes him in the ribs. Um, take your thing, wrap it around your legs, tie it up, and let's go. Put your sandals on. Uh, the chains fall off. Peter and the angel of the Lord are running, and there's a great big iron gate. What happens to the iron gate? Whoop! By the hand of the Lord. Peter is freed from imminent death. But did you notice that he is freed while he's still half asleep? He's borderline unaware of what's happening. It says he actually thought it was a vision. He's well aware that none of this is of his own doing. I, um, like many of you, wake up really early in the morning, and I love it. But I go to the gym, and, you know, I'm sitting on that stupid rolling machine at, like, 5 a.m., and I've experienced this many times. Many, many mornings, I will, like, be sitting on the rolling machine and be a couple of minutes in when I'm finally like, how did I get here? You ever have that? You're like, I think, man, that must have been really dangerous. Anyway, it is possible to like be so asleep that it's like a, a while later that you're like, wow, what did that happen? And it's almost like you are a passenger along for the ride. Well, that's what it is for Peter when he's set free. All of these are important observations from Scripture because they paint a picture. I want us to look briefly at this as an allegory. And the allegorical truth that we see in this is that Peter is rescued from death by God on the Passover. And friend, if you're a Christian, so too are you. Remember the Passover, this annual celebration of the remembrance of God delivering his people from slavery under the hand of Pharaoh. The Passover whereby God's people were spared from the wrath of God by the shed blood of a spotless lamb. God's wrath was about to be poured out on godless people, but God spared and shielded his own by the shedding of the blood of a spotless lamb. That's what happened at Passover. That's what was being commemorated at the time that Peter was set free. Well, let's talk about that in our context today. If you've been looking closely over the last couple of years, at social trends, you may have noticed that you are watching the West unravel. There appear to be things that are just like hard to believe you're even watching them happen, right? Like I look at some of the decisions that our politicians make and I think, how in the world is that in the best interest of the people? 
I look at a society and a world that has flipped virtue into vice and the other way around. And I, I puzzled over this for a, the first couple of years as it's accelerated over the last five years. Like, what is going on around me? But then I came to realize that there's only one thing that makes sense of the trends that we're seeing. And it's this. We are living under the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 1, it says that the evidence that you are living under the wrath of God, that he has handed you over to yourselves, is that men will lie with men and women will lie with women in ways that are disgraceful and that that will be commonly accepted. Now notice, it doesn't say that those actions are what bring about the wrath of God. It says when you see that in a prevalent way, that's evidence that you are living under the wrath of God. So friends, it's clear. All around us, we are living under the wrath of God. Where is our saving to be found? Should we put together a political lobby group? Well, not primarily. Should we as Christian men and women join polarized political parties and groups that lob grenades at one another? Is that where your saving is to be found? Certainly not. In times where God's wrath is being poured out, there is never any saving to be found except in the shed blood of the Lamb. This shed blood that shields us from the wrath of God that's being poured out upon us in judgment. That blood that is shed for us. Listen, that's the picture of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. That God's people are set free, shielded from the wrath of God by the blood of a spotless lamb. That's also the picture of what we see here with Peter. He is imprisoned under shackles and chains. He's destined for imminent death. The angel of the Lord appears to him, comes to him, and delivers him. Well, friend, the messenger of the Lord brings the message of the gospel to us, comes to you and to me rescuing us, setting us free by the blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God who by his death shields us from the wrath of God being poured out on humanity. Who in his body absorbs the death that we deserve. Peter is saved on the Passover and you and I have been saved by the Paschal Lamb. Okay, let's press more into this. In this account, we see yet another picture of how God saves his people in Christ, the Lamb of God. I touched on this briefly, but you'll notice that Peter does absolutely nothing to save himself. Did you see that? In fact, the account makes it abundantly clear that he's just a passive party to it all. He doesn't even come to his wits until he gets outside of the prison gates in verse 11. And he says, oh, 
Now I'm aware. You see that? And friends, it's so much the same for us. When we are brand new Christians, we might deceive ourselves and believe that there is something that we have contributed to our own salvation. Some cleverness, some virtue, that there's some good reason why God would choose us for saving. And yet as you grow in Christ, you see that like Peter, it was God who saved you and not you yourself. You didn't even have your wits about you. And after the fact, you're going to look back and say, oh, I see it now. It was all God. He set me free. He delivered me. I heard recently that everyone is born an Arminian and then grows into a Calvinist. If you want to know what that means, ask me after. It means this. Peter's delivering from prison shows us that God's saving work in you is all grace. You contribute nothing. It means that we should have humble gratitude. And it means that we can have security and assurance beyond measure. Because it's not about us, it's about him. Okay, the Lord God saves Peter. He's delivered and set free through the Passover. The Lord God saves you. You are delivered and set free through the shed blood of Jesus. Have you ever been saved? Have you ever been set free and delivered? Or would you look at your life right now and say, my life still feels like a whole bunch of shackles and chains. Well, if you know that you have been set free and saved, then praise God. But if not, then the invitation from this passage with urgency turn to the Lord. Turn to the spotless lamb for he alone can save you. All right, verses 12 to 17. So Peter now has been, by nothing he has done, freed from prison. He's been, shackles have fallen off. He's run out the gate. And here he's restored to the people of God. He makes his way to Mary's home. Mary is John Mark's mom. John Mark we're going to hear more about in the next few chapters. It appears as though he's a bit of a wimp, but God in his providence uses him to become the close companion of Peter and then eventually to write the gospel of Mark. Okay, so that's John Mark and his mom. So Peter makes his way to, to Mary's house, and he knocks on the door. This woman named Rhoda answers, right? Verse 13 to 14, she recognizes Peter's voice, and she runs away in joy. Verses 15 to 16, she goes in and she tells everyone in Mary's house, she's like, you guys aren't going to believe it. I know we've been praying, but like, he's actually been delivered and set free. And they're like, get out of here, crazy woman. I mean, that's pretty much what they say. They think she's lost her mind. 
Have you ever had news that's so good that it's hard to accept? That's what's happening here. Verse 17, so Peter himself stops knocking on the door. He comes inside. And you can only imagine that everyone would just erupt, right? And it says in verse 17 that Peter walks in, and it even says this. He motioned with his hands. He's like, simmer down. And then he begins to tell them everything that happened. And then he says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Now, this is not the same James who was executed in verses 1 to 2. This is James the Just, who was the brother of Jesus, who was the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And what are we to take from these verses? Well, friends, I think these are, uh, these are timely verses for a Sunday like today. We are launching our growth groups today. Okay? And in these verses we see a couple of things. In verse 5, we saw that the church gathered together in earnest prayer. And here we see that they did so in Mary's home. It was the common practice of the early church to meet together in homes. Already at this earliest stage, you can see a pattern forming. They got together. They were earnest in prayer together in Mary's home. They heard the testimony of Peter. And then they reached out their arms in fellowship. Go and tell James. Look, if you want to grow in Christ, maybe you're a new Christian, you were just recently baptized. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you're feeling stuck in your faith. There are few better ways to do it than to join a growth group. That's not an ad that's the truth. It's in these growth groups that you will pray together. You will study the word together. You will share in testimony together. You'll share in fellowship together. And day by day, God will add to your numbers those who are being saved. You might think, look, RD, I'd really like to join a growth group, but I don't have the time. Well, sorry, but I'm going to have to call you on that one. Anytime someone says that they don't have the time or the money, you know that it's about neither. It's about priorities. You always have time and money to do the things that you want to do. Join a growth group. Verses 18 and 19 concludes this passage. So Herod then has the sentries killed. And you know, this might seem barbaric and shocking when we read it, right? Because now um, prison guards have unions and you can't do things like this. But back then it was common practice. If a prisoner were to escape, then the guys who were the guards and charged with care, watching over him would receive whatever sentence it was that he was supposed to get. And it had to be that way, right? In a time where bribery was so common, you can imagine if your friend or family member was imprisoned, you would pay any sum of money to those guards to have him escape, if you know what I mean. So what's the incentive for the guard to not take a bribe and let the guy escape? Well, he's going to get whatever that guy had coming to him. So Peter's sentence was death. Peter escapes. 
these guys get killed. That's what happened. But in that, we see a picture of the gospel in relief. The gospel in negative. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what a negative is? Some of you guys are so young, you only had, had digital cameras, but if you know what a negative is from back when we actually had film, it was like the opposite colors to what comes through on the print. And that's what we see here, the gospel in negative. Herod kills the sentries who failed him in Peter's place. But the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't kill those who fail him and rebel against him. Instead, he dies for them, for you and in your place. Look, friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news of God's love for you in Jesus. A substitution that saves, not a substitution that kills. A substitution that saves you from the wrath of God that you deserve. Sets you free. Chains fall off. Delivers you from the tyranny of Satan. Just like God's people were delivered from Pharaoh... Just like God delivered Peter from chains and the sentence of death at the hand of Herod, so God, by the shed blood of Jesus, is your substitute who dies for you. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. There are so many true things that we can learn through common wisdom and common grace, but the central truths of the gospel are things we can only learn from your word. That we are sinners in need of a savior. That by the shedding of the blood of the son, we are saved. Lord, I pray especially for those here this morning who do not know if they are saved, that by your spirit, you would convict them of their sin, that by your spirit, you would grant them faith to believe and to trust in the Son, that they would believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. We pray this in your name. Amen.